Reformation Day is October 31st every year, just like Halloween. Um, And according to tradition, um, that is the day that the reformer Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of that church in Wittenberg. And um, those theses were were essentially grievances or complaints about um, just how broken the church was in Luther's day. And little, little did Luther know that God would use his protests, and he wasn't the only one, uh, but that God would use his protest to catalyze a movement um, that ultimately became known as the Protestant Reformation. And we're, we're gathered here worshiping this morning in part due to men and women such as Luther who took a stand for truth and called the church to much needed reformation. Um, but here's the thing. Although the church has been reformed, it still needs continuing reformation. In fact, in in the year 1674, a a Dutch man uh, by the name of Jacotus von Lodenstein wrote a devotional book, and in it he wrote these words, uh, and they're Latin, so so bear with me. He said, Ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda, secundum verbi dei. And that translates this, uh, the church is reformed and always being reformed according to God's word. So von Lodenstein was a Dutch reformed believer and theologian. And, and, he, and so he was saying, in essence, we stand firm on the foundation of the truth of the tradition to which we belong to. We have core beliefs that we hold to firmly. And so for us at Emmanuel, we're not a Dutch Reformed church, uh, but we are a church that aligns ourselves with core doctrines that came out of the Reformation, like the five solas, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that, that we believe that we exist and do all things for the glory of God alone. And that the scriptures alone are the final authority for our lives. And that's essentially what this series is about. The church must always be reforming, recalibrating herself back to God's truth. In a world uh, that inclines us away from God's truth, we have to constantly be going back to God's word because we're prone to wander. Our hearts are prone to wander. And, And even collectively as a church, we are prone to the beliefs of our day to be led ever so subtly astray. And so we have to Always be reforming. We have to immerse ourselves in God's word so that we we know what is true, so that we can walk in obedience, even if that truth is upstream from culture. And so this is going to constantly require us to to be being reformed, both personally and corporately. Um, And we see this lived out. We see this reality played out in the New Testament and throughout church history at various points. So that's what we're going to do the next few weeks, just in honor of the Reformation. We're going to, we're going to explore for the next three weeks this idea of semper reformanda. Um, and this morning to kick us off, I am so excited, church, that we have the great privilege of having my friend, my brother, Cam Pugh, uh, coming to preach the word to us. Cam is the pastor of Iron City Church. They're a sister church right here in our, in our downtown community in Birmingham. Iron City Church is a church that is for unity, that is for diversity, that is for the city, and that is for the glory of God. They, they very closely align with our values, um, and they are serious. They're serious about the pursuit of racial reconciliation through the gospel. Birmingham is blessed to have them, and I can think of few men that I respect more than this brother right here, Cam Pugh. He is a godly man. He is a, a steadfast man. He's a humble man, and he's a spirit-filled man. 
And he's a man who preaches the word of God faithfully. And so, church, I want you to help me welcome our brother, Cam Pugh, as he comes to preach the word to us this morning. Let's welcome Cam. I want to begin by saying I love Emmanuel Church. I love this church. I love your pastor. I was actually a member of another Emmanuel uh, with your pastor in Louisville, Kentucky. And so it is an honor to be here with this Emmanuel this morning. We, I pray for you privately often, but we also regularly pray for you publicly in our services because we know of our unity in the gospel and mission in our city, but honored, humble to be able to stand before you, to open the scriptures before you this morning. Again, going to begin, I've been asked to deal with the doctrine of justification by faith. It has been said, often attributed to Luther, we don't know that Luther actually said this, but it's been said that justification is the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. The doctrine by which the church stands or falls. And if you're familiar with church history, you know that during the Middle Ages, this dark period of the church, the influence of the Roman Catholic Church, the doctrine of justification by faith was almost completely lost. But there was some pre-reformers to Luther. Luther was a man that was always seeking to find rest in his soul, peace with God. Uh, he ends up becoming a monk. He says that he was a good monk. If anyone could ever be saved by his monkery, Luke said, it was I. He would fast. He almost fasted himself to death. He would sleep on the floor. He would flog himself to try to rid himself of sinful desires, but he found no peace with God. But he ends up becoming a professor and teaching through the scriptures, and during his time teaching through the scriptures, actually teaching through the Psalms, he comes to understand the just shall live by faith. This quote from Habakkuk that runs throughout the scripture, the just shall live by faith. And so, 501 years ago this week, Martin Luther goes and nails this obscure Augustinian monk, nails a piece of paper to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, lights a flame that spreads throughout the world and completely changes the world. He ends up being called to a council, the Diet of Worms, where he is called to give account for his writings, his teaching, the books that he has written. He's asked to recant, to revoco, to recant for his teachings. But he ends up saying that his conscience is fast bound, held fast by the word of God. That he cannot and must not recant unless convinced by reason or sacred scripture. And then the famous quote, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. Luther was willing to fight and die on the hill, on the mountain of justification by faith alone. So this morning, we're going to be asking the question, when is it right to fight? When is it right for us as Christians, as believers, to fight? The New Testament is clear that there is a time for us to stand up and fight for the truth. But the New Testament is also clear there is times for us to avoid quarreling. And to seek peace and unity. Some Christians in our day fight over anything and everything. And you know that from these folks, you've been around them. 
people that are always in battle mode end up hurting a lot of people. But there are other people that are so influenced by our culture, other professing Christians, they're not willing to stand even for the most core and central truths of Christianity. Not willing to obey Jude 3, where we're called to defend the faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints. So some people are fighting over everything and other people aren't willing to stand up for anything. We know from the scriptures both of these are problems. But this morning we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 15. So if you go ahead and turn to Acts 15. Acts chapter 15 is the passage we're going to be walking through together. This is a council. Luther was called to a council to the Diet of Worms as in the honor of Luther in this week. I thought it would be good for us to start at the church's first council where they do get together to talk about justification by faith. I think this text will help us discern when is it time to fight and when is it time to give up things in order to pursue peace with one another. The context of Acts 15 is that Paul and Barnabas have just gotten back from their first missionary journey. So they have gone in Acts 13 and 14 on this missionary journey. One of the most important verses in the book of Acts is Acts 14, 27, where Paul recounts that the door of faith has been opened to the Gentiles. So now they're back. They've just gotten back with their home church in Acts 15, with the church in Antioch that sent them out. They're rejoicing that God has opened this door of faith to the Gentiles. Again, imagine when Stephen Castillo comes back from Boston and shares with all of you that God has opened the door of faith. In Boston, there's many coming to faith through their church. The rejoicing that would happen, that's what's happening in Antioch right now. The church is rejoicing that these that they laid their hands on, Paul and Barnabas, have been sent out, and God has done miraculous things through them. The Lord opened a door of faith. But we know here that not everybody is happy that this door is open. We see here at the beginning of chapter 15 that some Jews show up from Jerusalem And they're not happy that this door of faith is open. They're actually coming and trying to close this door that the Lord has opened. Or at least they're trying to be bouncers at the door, determining who can get in and who can't get in. Look at the beginning of chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea, which is Jerusalem, and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So again, some Jews from Jerusalem show up here in Antioch and are telling these new Gentile believers that in order to be saved from their sins by Jesus, that they must be circumcised. They're not saying that Jesus doesn't save. But like, again, the Roman Catholic Church in Luther's day was not saying Jesus doesn't save. But they're adding something here to Jesus. They're saying circumcision plus Jesus is what equals salvation. And how do Paul and Barnabas respond? Look at verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Translation, a big debate, right? There's nothing small about this fight. Nothing small about this debate. Often today, I think I hear many Christians talk like that if, as long as someone's sincere in what they believe, then it's okay. As long as you're sincere, it's all right. That's not what Paul preached. Think about the book of Philippians. Paul says, I rejoice. People are preaching the gospel in Philippi to get Paul into more trouble. Not sincere in their reasons to preach the gospel. To get Paul into more trouble in his imprisonment. But Paul says, I rejoice. Even though they're not sincere, that the gospel is being preached. 
that the truth is being proclaimed. Within the book of Galatians, which was actually written during this time, after Paul's first missionary journey, Paul comes out swinging. He says, who has bewitched you? Again, people are saying that you got to be circumcised, be saved by Jesus. He says, I wish they would emasculate themselves, just cut it all off. He says, if we or an angel from heaven come preaching another gospel, let them be damned. Anathema. Paul comes out swinging when the truth of the gospel is at stake. It's not enough to be sincere. We must get the gospel right, brothers and sisters. It's worth fighting over. Paul and Barnabas decide there is too, these implications are too big for us just to put out some false teaching fires in Jerusalem or here in Antioch. We got to go to Jerusalem. We got to go to Jerusalem to ground zero and convene with all the big dogs in Jerusalem to get this sorted out. And that's exactly what they do. Again, like Luther has to go to Worms to get this short, sorted out. They go to Jerusalem. They make this 250-mile journey to Jerusalem in verse 3. One of the things interesting here, Paul and Barnabas are on their way to a fight. But notice what they do in verse 3. It says they, they stop along their way and they spread joy to all the brothers. This is the kind of pastor, this kind of Christian I want to be. Someone who's always ready for a fight when the truth is at stake. But even when I'm on my way to a fight, to a street fight, that I'm spreading joy to the people of God. That's the way Paul and Barnabas were wired. On this long journey to Jerusalem, but willing to stop and to encourage the brothers to spread joy with them as they go. A gospel grit and grace at the same time. Only the Holy Spirit of God can produce this within us. So they show up in Jerusalem in verse 4. They give a report to the church there, again, of how God has opened this door of faith. They encourage the brothers, but also their, their opponents that were having this fight with in Antioch are back in Jerusalem. Verse 5, they're ready for this fight as well. Look at verse 5. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So again, the same guys, same debate that happened back in Antioch, but now they're on ground zero for the church. They're here in Jerusalem for this debate. And again, the argument they're making here is that these Gentiles need to become like Jews to be saved. You know, I do think we need to give these folks a little grace and understanding that we, the book of Galatians hasn't been written yet. The book of Romans hasn't been written yet. The book of Hebrews hasn't been written yet. These books that so clearly help us to understand the Old Testament, to understand the Old Covenant, and how it relates to us now as the people of God. I'm sure they thought about circumcision. Again, back to Abraham, circumcision has marked out the people of God from Abraham on, at least for males, right? So they think, again, of course these people have to be circumcised. This was the command. They don't yet understand Romans 2, though. But Paul talks about that a Jew is not one outwardly, but inwardly. It's circumcision of the heart is what marks us out now as the people of God. They don't yet understand Galatians 3, where Paul makes it clear that being a Jew is not about who your daddy is anymore. It's about having the faith of Abraham, about believing in the true son and seed of Abraham, who Paul says is just one dude. It's Jesus. If you believe in him, then you are a son of Abraham by faith, and you have all the heirs. You're an heir according to the promise. All the promises of God are yes and amen for you if you believe in Jesus. 
They understood that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but they haven't yet understood what it meant for Jesus to come to fulfill it. They came, they came to understand that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, but they didn't yet understand that Jesus came to not just be a Jewish Messiah, but to be the Savior of the world. These are former Pharisees. The party of the Pharisees are called here, and they've come to believe in Jesus, which in itself is a miracle, right? I mean, think about the Gospels. Who does Jesus hold his harshest language for? The Pharisees, right? He's constantly doing battle with these folks. He calls them snakes, whitewashed tombs, that they look good on the outside, but inside they're dead. He says, your problem is, yeah, you may have memorized most of the Old Testament, but you miss me. That Moses wrote about me. You may have memorized all of Moses, but you've missed the one that Moses wrote about. And if you miss Jesus, you miss everything. But now they've come to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But they're still wanting people to follow the law of Moses that Jesus came to fulfill. Again, they're teaching here that Jesus plus circumcision plus keeping the law of Moses is what equals salvation. And Paul is very clear, the letter he writes during this time of Galatians, that Jesus plus anything is another gospel, that which is no gospel at all. If you're adding anything to Jesus, it can't save anybody. Again, many people in our day, brothers and sisters, love to add things to Jesus. We must beware of people even adding things that seem biblical to Jesus that end up being no gospel at all. Paul could not be more clear in Ephesians 2, these famous verses, that it's by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is by grace alone. Justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world, isn't it, brothers and sisters? That we are saved by grace. We are declared, counted as righteous in Christ. Again, the picture has been painted before that all these other religions of the world paint God at the top of this mountain, and we try to work our way up to him by our works. But Christianity says nobody could ever be good enough to work their way up the mountain. But the good news of the gospel is that God has come down the mountain to us in Jesus. He has come down to save us and do for us what we can never do for ourselves. This is what Paul and Barnabas are defending here in Jerusalem. And after this debate with Paul and Barnabas and the Pharisee party, no one is surprised who steps up to the plate and the mic first, right? Peter grabs the mic here. This fisherman turns into a lawyer here and starts laying out a bunch of arguments for them of why they must accept Gentiles into the fold, into the family of faith. Paul be, or Peter begins by pointing back to Acts chapter 10. This probably happened about 10 years ago at this point. And his first argument to them of why they should accept the Gentiles and not make them be circumcised is that this was God's choice. This wasn't Peter's choice. This was God's choice. Look at verse 7. He says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. That by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Again, if you've read Acts 10, you know Peter didn't want to go. Peter didn't want to go and talk to these Gentiles. He had had this vision three times. This sheep come down with all these strange animals before him three times before Peter is willing to go. And then he had to have somebody come and get him and take him by the hand to preach to these Gentiles. He's saying, this wasn't my choice. I resisted. But God prevailed. This was God's choice from the beginning. 
The second argument he makes in verses eight, in verse eight, he says, God has given them the same Holy Spirit he gave to us. They heard the same gospel and believed in the same gospel. Now they have the same spirit that we have. In verse nine, he says, the Lord has made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So Peter's saying, who are we to make distinctions that God himself has not made? How can we draw lines in the sand that the Lord himself has not drawn? And his third argument here is in verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter's saying, who are you to put this yoke, this burden, that you would put upon big, large animals to do some work for you, a heavy burden? Who are you to put this upon the Gentiles? He said, the yoke of the law has been too heavy for any of us to bear. Our fathers couldn't bear it. We ourselves couldn't bear it. You can't bear the weight of the law. So who are you to put it upon someone else? Again, if you're familiar with the writing of Luther, he loves to talk about the yoke of the law. And that no one was able to bear the yoke of the law but Jesus. Paul tells us that through the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul is very clear in the book of Galatians that the law is not meant to be used for us to earn righteousness, but it's to be a tutor. Anybody ever need a tutoring before? It's a tutor to teach us about our need for Jesus, to show us our inability to meet the standard of God's holiness because of our sin. If you grew up around the church, I'm sure you've heard that sin is an archery term. It means to miss the mark. And this is what the law teaches us, that we've all missed the mark. We've all missed the mark of God's holiness, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, Paul tells us. And when Jesus asks what's the greatest commandment, do you remember what he says? To love God, the Lord your God, with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and all your strength. And to love your neighbors yourself. I stand before you as a pastor saying, I don't think I've ever done that before, brothers and sisters. I think by the Spirit of God, I'm learning to do that more and more, to love God more and more, to love my neighbor more and more than myself. But one of the things Luther loves to talk about is that this commandment teaches us not only do you need Jesus for your openly rebellious sins. You need Jesus for everything. You need Jesus for all of your life. You have no hope of living up to God's perfect standard. Jesus, his grace from first to last is our only hope, brothers and sisters. So they're trying to add circumcision to this. And Paul, again, is clear in Galatians. It's not about being circumcised or uncircumcised. It's about being a new creation is what he says in Galatians 6.15. It's about being a new creation through faith in Jesus. This is what saves us. But then Peter lays out something that would have been scandalous, shocking to this council. Really, the central verse here is verse 11 for this whole council. You would think he would say that the Gentiles would be saved just like the Jews. But look what he says. But we believe that we Jews will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as the Gentiles will. He reverses it here. And after the statement, verse 12 tells us that all the assembly fell silent. So Peter, instead of just dropping the mic here, he, he go, passes it to Paul and Barnabas. So he's the first line of defense here of why they should accept in the Gentiles Again, just by grace through faith in Jesus alone. But here in verse 12, we see that Paul and Barnabas relate to this 
counsel all the things that God has done. So they related the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Luke here, who wrote the book of Acts, just gives them one verse. But he just gives them one verse because he's just given them two chapters of all that God has done through their first missionary journey, the signs and wonders. So what the Pharisee party is saying about what Paul and Barnabas has done is that it was wrong to preach the gospel in this way. It was insufficient for them just to proclaim the gospel and not call them to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. But what Paul and Barnabas are saying here is that these miracles, these signs and wonders that God did through us, you know what they are? These are our receipts, folks. These are our receipts. You ever been to Sam's Club before? They check your receipts and make you feel like you're doing something wrong on the way out. God has given us these receipts. He came alongside what we're doing, our proclamation, and did signs and wonders to validate everything we preached was true. Everything we proclaimed there was true. So that's the second line of defense. Paul and Barnabas stand up in this council. It says, God has validated our message. I know we're in the middle of the World Series right now. I'm sure Stephen is really pumped about what's going on in Boston. But here we've got, coming out of the bullpen, James, who seems at this point to be the biggest dog in the Jerusalem church. He comes out here as the closer at this council. And James could have started back in Genesis 12 and said, hey, from the beginning, God's purpose was for the the seed of Abraham to be a blessing to all the nations. But instead, he chooses, he picks this obscure passage from the prophet Amos. But notice what he says. He proves from of old, is the quote here, it was God's plan that the Gentiles would be a part of his people. That they would be people called by his name. Language that's almost exclusively used of Israel in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. But here, Amos says that the Gentiles will be called by his name. And he goes on to say, hey, David's greater son has come. He's ascended his throne. And now David's greater son, Jesus, is calling all the nations to himself. He is the savior of the world. So James concludes here, don't trouble these Gentiles anymore, these things. These Gentiles who have turned from their sin and turned to Jesus and trusted him, stop adding things to them. Again, it's maybe a good summary of Luther's words to the Catholic Church. Just stop it. Stop adding things that people have to do in order to be saved. No sinner can be good enough, not even the Pope. We all are in desperate need of his grace. Stop adding yokes. Stop adding burdens to people. All three of these defenses that happen here at this council affirm to us that salvation, again, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Stop adding things to the table here. Stop adding things that people must do in order to enter into this door of salvation. But right after these three defenses, right after James agrees with these defenses that Peter and Paul and Barnabas have made, it seems like James tries to sneak salvation by works through the back door. Stranger, look at verse 20, actually back at verse 19 for context. It says, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and for what has been strangled and from blood. So what is going on here? It seems, again, right after saying, okay, don't add any burdens to people, that James is adding some burdens to people, right? 
He gives them two commands here, which actually run throughout all the scriptures, right? To not participate in idolatry, to not participate in sexual morality. But then he throws these two strange things in here. To abstain from what has been strangled and from blood. So what's going on here? Well, I I think two things are going on here. One, James is not saying these Gentiles have to become Jews to become Christians. But he is saying they can't stay pagan. And all four of these things, these two commands and these two concessions that he asked them to make, are closely tied with paganism. So the last two here, though, are gospel liberties. Gospel liberties that he's asking them to give up from abstaining from what has been strangled and from blood. He's asking them to give it up so that they can have table fellowship, so they can have peace with their Jewish brothers. These new Gentile believers, again, you don't have to become like a Jew, but be willing to give up some things so that you can have unity in the gospel with Jesus, with your Jewish brothers and sisters. We know from Acts chapter 10, again, Peter's vision, there there is nothing wrong with a rare steak or barbecue. Amen, right? It's good to enjoy the new covenant, brothers and sisters. The new covenant is good for many reasons. But... It is wrong for you to love food more than you love your brother and sister. Again, it's wrong for me if I invite my vegan neighbors over for dinner to serve them steak, right? The context in Acts is we see that Christians ate together a lot. It's a good thing for them to show their unity together in Jesus. They did a lot of eating together, but for hundreds of years, it had been prohibited for Jews and Gentiles to come together and eat together. But now they're one in Jesus, so their unity in the gospel, their table fellowship displays that unity in Jesus. So here, James is saying, give up whatever you got to give up. Leave off your plate whatever you need to leave, because your unity in Jesus is more important than what's on your plate. So I I was planning on maybe stopping here and just throwing an alley-oop to Andy, because I know he's going to be here in a few weeks, but he he told me to preach, so I'm going to preach, guys. This is something I feel like, again, because of Luther and because of this week, we we must address. Brothers and sisters, we we have seen, even this week in our nation, we've seen acts of racial terror in our nation. Things that should break our hearts. Things that should make us weep as the people of God. One way that sin has corrupted all of us, it makes us fear and even despise people different than us. If you're familiar with Luther's life, this is his great blind spot, especially late in his life in ministry. He says some absolutely horrific things about Jews. Terrible, despicable things. He was wrong. None of us is immune to prejudice, brothers and sisters. But hear me. No prejudice in your heart is safe when Jesus is Lord. No prejudice is safe when Jesus is Lord. I think one of the things that James is laying out for us here is one of the best ways to deal with and die to your prejudices is to pick up a plate and sit across the table with people who are different than you. There is so much debating and talking past one another in our days. I think much of it could be settled if we sat at the same table and had these discussions together as a family. One of the things that I hate more than anything else is seeing and hearing 
so many white Christians downplay and even dismiss the experiences of our black and brown brothers and sisters in our nation and their experiences here. I think one of our problems is that we have often not gotten close enough to feel the pain of our brothers and sisters. So I know it's fall and it's finally getting cold. Thankful for that. But back this summer, my wife walked into our bedroom before bed, and I was in our bed reading. Covers was off me. I was burning up. The fan was on over me. My wife peeks her head in our room and turns off the fan and runs and gets into our bed under the covers, and she's shivering. And I said, what is wrong with you? What is going on? And she said, I'm freezing. I said, there is no way in the world you can be freezing. I'm burning up. We live in the same house. We're in the same room. I was angry. How in the world can you be freezing? You know what? She put her feet on me, and they were freezing. We were in the same place, same house. We had completely different experiences there. It took me getting close enough to my wife to feel her, to know what she was going through. Often we need proximity to overcome our prejudices, brothers and sisters. We need to be able to sit down at the table and again allow our unity in Jesus to overcome any differences that may be keeping us apart. Again, let me tell you a story that Paul records for us in Galatians 2. Peter, the apostle Peter, who's just made this incredible defense for why Gentiles should be accepted into the household of faith. Peter is in Antioch, eating with Gentiles. You know what happens? This same group of folks, this circumcision party, show up. You know what Peter does? He withdraws from eating with his brothers and sisters. And again, Paul, who is a little dog in the church at this point, goes up and publicly rebukes Peter, who is a big dog in the church at this point. And he says, your actions are out of step with the gospel. Out of step with the gospel. So brothers and sisters, do not ever let anyone tell you that racism is not a gospel issue. There is a prominent white pastor who I've had a lot of respect for in the past, who said a few years ago, when asked about how he deals with racism in his church, he says, I just preach the gospel and racial issues disappear. Brothers and sisters, it did not just disappear for Peter. And if it did not disappear for Peter, an apostle of Jesus, it's probably not going to just disappear for you and me. We must allow the gospel to daily confront any prejudices that may remain in our hearts. We must allow the gospel to take people who once were our enemies or once we were indifferent to and make them our beloved family in Jesus. This is what the gospel is. This is what the gospel does. The gospel unites us. Again, it confronts these things in us. Knowing that we're all made in the image of God, we all have dignity and value and worth being made in his image. But we're also uniting that we're all jacked up sinners that can't save ourselves. That you and I, none of us can be good enough to earn God's favor. That's one of the things that unites us together. Again, as has been said, we are all equal at the foot of the cross, right? We are all in desperate need of his grace. The cross has done something about this. There's a lot of talk in our day about building walls, right? What do walls represent? Division, right? Division. Ephesians 
2 could not be more clear that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down, brothers and sisters. The cross has broken it down. The problem is, as sinners, we try to reconstruct, rebuild walls that Jesus has already broken down. If you are in Jesus, you are positionally united to Jesus by faith. But also, you are united to everyone who belongs to him. That's who you are positionally. We just got to start living like that practically, right? This is who we are in Jesus. The apostles in Acts 15 say, stop trying to rebuild walls that Jesus broke down. Stop trying to close doors that Jesus has already opened. And they send a letter back to Antioch to report all the things they've just discussed at this council. Verse 31 says, the church in Antioch that's full of both Jew and Gentile people rejoices when they get this word. I'm sure the ladies were happy, but especially these Gentile men, right? So we, we put those knives up. We don't have to talk about circumcision anymore, right? We're, we are one in Jesus through faith. But I think it's good for us to remember that this first church council was called not to deal with the Trinity, not to deal with the hypostatic union, but to deal with justification by faith and racial division in the church. And the result of this, again, verse 31 tells us, is there was incredible unity. They rejoiced together. But there's an interesting thing that happens at the end of chapter 15. We have a division and separation after all this talk of unity. After, again, giving up things, putting things off your plate so you can have unity and fellowship with your Jewish brothers and sisters, we have Paul and Barnabas, these gospel partners in crime that have gotten into all kinds of trouble together. They separate. They divide over whether they should take John Mark, this young man who abandoned them when things got hard on their first missionary journey. Verse 39 said they had a sharp disagreement that led to separation. It's interesting, Luke doesn't tell us who was right. He doesn't tell us who was right here. We know that God providentially used this to advance the mission, them going in different places. But it it made me think of the division, again, of black and white in America. And unlike Paul and Barnabas, it is very clear historically who was right and who was wrong. Again, if you know the story, 1787, Richard Allen, Absalom Jones were part of this Methodist church in Philadelphia. They walk in one Sunday and are told they have to sit in a separate section They're told they have to come to the Lord's table at a different time. Absalom Jones is on his knees during a time of prayer, and he's yanked up and told he can't pray there. So these two men walk out of this Methodist church and go and form the first black denomination in America, the African Methodist Episcopal denomination, which since that day, the black church has been a backbone, a prophetic, necessary backbone in American society. But very clear when it comes to history, who was wrong? Again, pastor in Philadelphia, Eric Mason, says that the black church exists because the white church decided to be the white church and not the church. This original separation was out of step with the gospel. Our white parents and grandparents were out of step with the gospel when it came to issues of race over and over again. But I think we have to realize Again, looking at the book of Acts, looking at what's going on here in Jerusalem Council, that there is a reason why the apostles did not plant Jewish churches over here and Gentile churches over here. 
because it would have lied about the gospel. The Bible demands that we think about unity across all different lines of sinful division. But also, brothers and sisters, Birmingham demands it. The city we live in demands it. We are not Christians and we are not churches in a vacuum. If we are going to faithfully preach the gospel in the city, in this context where the Lord has called us, we must deal with the sins of our city, of the past and of the present. We are known around the world as what? Bombingham, right? We are known around the world as being ground zero for racism and division. We're known for fire hoses and dogs. We can be thankful that some laws have changed. We can be thankful that Jim Crow is dead, but his ghost still haunts the streets of our city every day, brothers and sisters. Again, I think we have to be honest and say, before Jesus comes back, we're not going to eradicate racism in our city. We're not going to eradicate racism in our country. But I firmly believe that we as churches can stop being a part of perpetuating the problems and start being a part of the solutions. We can be what Jesus called us to be. Remember what Jesus said? You need to be a city on a hill, light in the midst of the darkness. And my prayer for Emmanuel Church, for Iron City Churches, for all the churches of our city, is that we would begin to be a beautiful display of color and light in the city that is filled with so much darkness and division. And only Jesus, by his spirit, can do that, brothers and sisters. But he can do it in Birmingham, a city filled with darkness. The light can shine forth all the more. As Dr. King says, the, the light shines the brightest at night, right? The stars only come out at night. You only can see them at night. We can be that light in our city. At the end of Paul's life, in his last letter, in 2 Timothy 4.11, some of Paul's last words in his last letter, he tells Timothy to bring John Mark to me, for he is very useful to me. After this division, it's obvious at some point some kind of reconciliation happened. They became co-laborers in ministry together again. Brothers and sisters, our city has been divided for way too long. And we need one another. Every culture, every Christian, all of us have our blind spots. There's things in my beard I can't see, right? I need brothers and sisters to point it out for me. When it's plain on my face to everybody else, we need one another. And there's a beauty and diversity of Jesus' kingdom, and we're missing out on if we are divided. And know that gospel unity isn't calling for, calling for uniformity or assimilation. It's calling for unity and diversity. One of the things that I've seen over the past four years being a pastor here, meeting with a lot of different pastors, is there's been a lot of turf wars between churches here for a long time. That's got to go away, brothers and sisters we got to stop seeing each other as competition and start seeing each other as co-laborers. We, when we let our differences divide us, we are lying about the gospel of Jesus to the world. Let's not lie any longer, brothers and sisters. John 17, Jesus prayed and died for our unity. He reconciles us to God and one another. Now we as his people must be willing to fight and die for the truth of the gospel. We must be willing to die to ourselves, though, in areas where we need to die to ourselves to pursue unity in the gospel of Jesus. So there's a time to fight, and there's a time to fight for peace. We need to fight to the death over the truth of justification by faith alone, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Fight on that hill every day, brothers and sisters. Be willing to die on that hill. 
The church stands or falls on that hill. But, again, as Acts 15 tells us from the very beginning, we also must be willing to die to ourselves in order for this gospel that unites us to God and to one another, for the witness of the church to be advanced in Birmingham and beyond to the ends of the earth. And we pray that will give us grace to hear and heed his word this morning. Father, I thank you for this church I thank you for this expressed desire of this church to be a diverse family of disciples living to make the real Jesus known in Birmingham and beyond. Father, that can only happen by your spirit. Andy can't manufacture that here. John Tavius can't manufacture that here. Buster, no no brother, no sister can manufacture this work. Only you by your spirit can manufacture this work, can produce this work. All the things we've talked about today are in vain unless your spirit comes. Unless your spirit comes and takes people who are dead in their sins and saves them by grace through faith in Jesus alone. Unless your spirit comes and applies this work to our hearts and makes us begin to walk in step with the gospel walk in fellowship with you and with one another, we need or in desperate need of your grace for these things. So we pray that you would help us to know when it's right to fight and when we have to fight to die to ourselves to walk in unity with one another. We need your grace and spirit, so we pray you would send your spirit to do this work among us and do it for our good, for the good of our city of our witness to the ends of the earth, but above all else, we pray you do this for your glory in Christ and ask these things in Jesus' name.